This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent historian Nigel Hamilton about his new book, War and Peace, FDR's Final Odyssey. D-Day to Yalta, 1943-1945. This is the third volume, Nigel, in your FDR War Trilogy. But let me begin by asking why you wrote it. What do you tell us that is at odds with what we think we already know about Roosevelt's part in the winning of the Second World War and the settling of the post-war peace? You tell an heroic tale, but before carrying us along the line of the final odyssey. Start with your reasons for doing so. Well, thank you, Lewis. The honest truth is that, like many British people and most Americans, I didn't have a clear idea of what exactly FDR did in, uh, in a military sense in World War II. And I had been writing a book called American Caesars about the uh, presidents, the 12 presidents from FDR to through to George W. Bush. It was modeled on a famous Roman history called the Twelve Caesars. And I was astonished that nobody had ever addressed FDR's role as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States and in the most violent war in human history. And that seemed to me wrong, particularly because... Um, obviously, as, as somebody coming originally from Britain, although I'm a mat- naturalized citizen now here, I had grown up with the six volumes of Winston Churchill's famous The Second World War, his memoirs of how he won World War II as a strategist and uh, a commander-in-chief of the British Empire forces. Well, I was a great admirer of Winston Churchill. I am apparently the last person outside the Churchill family to have actually stayed with Sir Winston and Lady Churchill, their country house in Kent. At what age? How old were you? I was 19. And um, I was immensely um, impressed with him and the whole uh, sort of aura around him. Uh, you know, I was taken there by um, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, who was a sort of godfather to me, uh, who'd served under Winston Churchill in the war. And uh, Monty insisted that I go uh, and see in, uh, look at the paintings by Winston Churchill in the uh, painting hut. And I, <laughs> at 19, I was astonished at what, what a wonderful painter he was. They were all of landscapes rather than people. But at any rate, as a, as a young man, as a college student, I was terrifically impressed with him, uh, and I imbibed the uh, the uh, six-volume series, which helped uh, Churchill to win the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature. It is just wonderfully written. It's yeah, like, he's a, he was a marvelous writer. Yes. I mean, it's like Gibbon. Yeah. But over the years, I became a little more skeptical about his role, particularly when I was the official biographer or authorized biographer of Field Marshal Montgomery his whole life. And uh, and I knew the Field Marshal very well. And uh, Monty, although he admired Churchill, particularly for his uh, performance in 1940 as prime minister, that was his finest hour, 
Uh, We shall fight them on the beaches, (laughs) in the hills. We will never surrender. We will never surrender. And Monty gave him full credit for that. But Monty had serious reservations as a soldier about how meddlesome Churchill was and the crazy ideas he would put forward, which he shared with me. I never thought at that point, this is many years ago, I'm now 75, (laughs) I never thought that uh, more or less 50 years later I would be writing about uh, Churchill's counterpart, the commander-in-chief of the American forces in World War II. So, as I say, having having written about FDR in in American Caesars, having... taken the view that really this man's military role in World War II was not only underestimated, it was pretty unknown. And since then, whenever I speak to to colleagues and and ordinary people, I'm amazed at how little people understand about what uh, FDR really did in World War II. And I think that's not only because Winston Churchill, in a sense, uh, <laughs> ruled the territory of of memoir and, and history uh, for so long and so brilliantly. I think it was also because uh, FDR died before the war was over, just uh, two or three weeks before Hitler committed suicide. And after that, the the generals who'd all taken part, I mean, we're talking about the military perspective. I'm, I'm not really judging him as a politician, but from the military perspective, uh, the generals took over, not only in Britain, but in the United States, publishing their, their own memoirs, having sort of formal biographies written of themselves, their diaries published, and so forth, in which they claimed a major role in, in winning World War II and uh, not necessarily giving the president uh, great credit other than as a kind of rather distant figure whom they didn't see that often. They were, uh, particularly uh, if they were in yeah. combat commands. Uh, yeah. But uh, so I began with a kind of, sort of open slate and it was only when I began to do the research for the book, I wanted it to start with Pearl Harbor and go through to his death and I intended it really just to be a short book (laughs) Um, one single volume, but the more research I did, the more I felt, well this is incredible that this story has never been told about in many ways the greatest United States president in terms of the military role as commander-in-chief in its history, conducting a global war, how was it possible that this hasn't this story hasn't been fully told? Uh, I did manage to interview, I just say that uh, I, I was fortunate in being able to interview before he died, uh, the last senior member of uh, Roosevelt's map room at the White House. And he was a Harvard graduate. Uh, he was employed at the White House as, as, as a lieutenant. And he, um, he w- had begun to assemble FDR's papers in the, uh, towards the end of 1944 and in the spring of 1945 with a view to FDR writing his own memoirs. So here one had Winston Churchill (laughs) quietly putting 
uh, his memos into his files and uh, ready to, in fact, boasting to people that once the war was over, he would win it for a second time, <laughs> i.e. in prose. But so, the president not able to do so. And in a way, this book of yours is the memoir that Roosevelt might have written had he lived to do so. Uh, in many ways, it is, yes. Well, let us begin with this third volume, in more or less in medias race. So this volume begins in November of 1943. Roosevelt, the American president, is on his way for a, to Tehran for a meeting with Stalin and Churchill to envision the possible peace arrangement at, at, at the end of a war that they already think they're going to probably win. But maybe that's wrong. But begin there and, and, and tell us what the state of play in, in November and Roosevelt setting off on, on, on uh, the journey to Tehran. Well, as you say, the, the, the volume begins with a voyage. Here is the president going to sea uh, shortly after Armistice Day on the USS Iowa, the latest United States battleship at the time. And he is going to Cairo to meet Winston Churchill, his British opposite number, his ally. Uh, and together, he and Churchill are going to fly to Tehran to meet Stalin and to discuss really military strat strategy more than like uh, later the okay. post-war Yalta, right. is it? So, uh, but the difficulty is that um, the president wants to meet Stalin. He's never met him, whereas Churchill has several times. But the president has begun to hear disturbing reports that Winston Churchill, uh, although he's agreed, as I wrote in the second volume, Commander-in-Chief, although Winston Churchill has agreed to mount D-Day, a second front, which was the Russians considered absolutely crucial to surviving the war, although he's agreed on paper, Winston Churchill thinks that it's, quote, a lawyer's agreement, and lawyer's agreements can be broken. And the president learns through his intelligence and his staff, particularly Henry Stimson, his uh, Secretary of War, that Churchill has gone behind the president's back and has sent a secret signal to Stalin without telling the president to say that D-Day, which is, is set for the 1st of May 1944, has to be cancelled because Winston Churchill feels that Italy is a very difficult place and that they have to fight harder there and longer and D-Day will be delayed. And the president is furious. Properly so. Well, he's been struggling against Winston Churchill's unwillingness to, uh, to mount, help mount the invasion. And the trouble is the United States, which has intended to mount a, a, a cross-channel invasion, all since before Pearl Harbor, it's part of the victory plan, Germany first, then Japan. And the only way to defeat Germany, or in specific terms, defeat the Wehrmacht, is by crossing the English Channel. It can't be done down in the Mediterranean or in the Balkans, or let alone Rhodes and the Dardanelles. It has to be a cross-channel invasion. And the president has insisted, he's overruled his chiefs of staff in 1942, saying uh, it cannot be done 
until American troops uh, learn how to defeat the Wehrmacht in the field. Not just the troops, but the commanders. We have to fight, find the right commanders who, in battle, actually can do the job. And so uh, that's why he insists first on an, uh, an American invasion of North Africa, the Torch invasion, in November of 1942. And then in 1943, he again overrules his chiefs of staff and says, look, yes, we're in North Africa, but we've only been facing Vichy French troops. We still haven't faced the real Wehrmacht. You know, Erwin Rommel is quite a formidable foe. So the president says, no, we will fight in the Mediterranean during 1943 in order to learn the business of modern war against a really determined uh, and, and ter tremendously professional enemy, the, the Wehrmacht. And exactly that happened under, under Pre uh, General Eisenhower, whom the president appointed. The Allies were successful. A whole German army, a quarter of a million men, su surrendered to the uh, Allies, the Americans and, and their allies in, in North, North Africa, Africa in the spring of 1943. And by the summer of 1943, American forces had uh, carried in, out... In, in Italy. Well, they'd carried out, most important, they'd carried out this amphibious invasion of Sicily across a, a major yeah. stretch of ocean in, and in order to show how they could bring together the United States Navy, well, the Allied navies, uh, uh, American troops under General Patton, and, and their air forces. And many lessons were learned. Then they landed in s southern Italy, and that was the situation uh, in the fall of 1943. And the president was delighted with uh, Eisenhower's performance. But as he sets forth on the USS Iowa to go to Cairo and Tehran, he finds that Churchill's been working behind his back and isn't actually going to use that tremendous experience that those commanders have, have uh, amassed in the Mediterranean to mount D-Day. In Why? The of what is Churchill afraid of? Well, I'm not Churchill's biographer, <laughs> and, no, okay. and therefore uh, anything I say is to some degree speculative. Yes, I did stay with him as a student, and I have a reading of his personality, a pretty strong personality. Um, and he himself, in his various writings, but particularly in his memoirs, gave different accounts of why he, he was skeptical, but he certainly came twice to the United States in 1943 to uh, argue with the president, and not just with the president. He even went to, uh, before Congress, gave a speech, and then privately saw congressmen and senators and said, you know, I foresee an English channel running with blood if this invasion is really mounted. He just didn't like it. Now, various historians have given different views. Some people feel that he was still wound up with his failure in the Dardanelles in World War I. Uh, others feel that uh, this was a very compassionate man who was concerned about the casualties that would be involved. I have to say, and I repeat, I'm not his biographer, I'm a, very skeptical of that because Churchill was a very impetuous man and he certainly didn't mind risking huge casualties. I mean, as we'll probably uh, discuss, yeah. he, he ordered an invasion in uh, southern Italy to try and uh, 
take Rome by coup de main, which uh, was not only a disastrous failure at Anzio, but involved 43,000 casualties in three months. So one can't say that this is a man who was rightfully just concerned about bloodshed on the beaches of Normandy or the Pas de Calais. All right, so now... What happens in Cairo in November 1943? Roosevelt's come from America, Churchill from England. They meet in Cairo, on their, and they're on their way to Tehran. Well, it's, it's very interesting because I hadn't realized that um, until I uh, examined the timetable carefully and began to look at the minutes of meetings, uh, so far as they exist, the president didn't like to keep too many records. He was always cautious about right-wing politicians using them against him. Um, he he uh, hears that uh, Churchill is threatening this showdown and uh, in Cairo and that Churchill is writing an indictment. Now, Churchill was a pretty good writer. <laughs> He's yeah. formulating this indictment to denounce American, in other words, the president's strategy for winning the war. And so the first thing he does when he lands in North Africa is not go to Cairo, I found. He goes with Eisenhower. He takes Eisenhower on his plane, which was nicknamed the Sacred Cow, <laughs> and he flies to Tunis and spends several days with Eisenhower. And I wondered why he you know, was holding back rather than simply going to meet uh, Prime Minister Churchill. And what I found, particularly in, a, in an unpublished um, uh, account that uh, Eisenhower gave, was that he was feeling out Eisenhower as the uh, possible uh, supreme commander of this invasion. But he didn't want to actually announce it or appoint him, uh, not only because he, to some degree, promised the job to General Marshall, uh, but because he felt that as long as uh, Eisenhower was still in command in the Mediterranean as Allied Commander-in-Chief, Eisenhower would stop Churchill from doing anything too impetuous. I mean, Churchill did, uh, it's true, invade uh, various Greek islands uh, in the Dodecanese, particularly Rhodes, which were complete failures. So clearly this in British commander-in-chief is a difficult man to, um, to control, but he is anxious to discuss with Eisenhower uh, w what Eisenhower feels about a cross-channel la landing. Is his heart really in that, uh, or does he feel it's too much of a, uh, an undertaking? After all, Eisenhower is the man who was uh, responsible for the uh, successful invasion of Sicily. And I think that is the key to understanding what is really the president's triumph in 1943. And it's a, it, a, a story which is very rarely been told and certainly not really examined, which is how the president knows in advance that Churchill is heading for this showdown. They come on their two battleships. They're going to meet in Cairo and the president is fully prepared. So he listens to Churchill as when Churchill delivers his indictment and he says, well, very interesting. <laughs> 
Prime Minister, but thank you very much. You've signed up to uh, for a D-Day to be launched on the 1st of May, and we're going to stay with that policy. And now we're going to Tehran, and we'll find out whether Stal- Marshal Stalin agrees with us. And what happens in, in, in Tehran? Well, they both fly to Tehran... Uh, the president decides, he, uh, Churchill invites him to stay in the British embassy, but he, 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 the president doesn't want to stay in the British embassy there because he knows Churchill will go on and on about yeah. invading roads again <laughs> to make up for this terrible yeah. failure. So he stays in the Russian embassy, meets uh, Stalin. They discuss the vital importance of uh, a cross-channel landing in mm-hmm. 1944. And when they meet together in the uh, actual plenary sessions, uh, Churchill recognized that, that basically the president has won. He is outnumbered two against one. And right. so he has to sign up, uh, not to a lawyer's agreement anymore, but to a formal agreement between the three foremost allies of the United Nations that D-Day will take place in May of 1944. And the triumph to me of what the president achieved is that FDR managed to get Stalin to agree to a Russian offensive that would take place, would be launched simultaneously with D-Day, which would mean that Hitler couldn't withdraw troops from the Eastern Front to meet Eisenhower's invasion of France. This was absolutely critical to the prosecution of the war. And not only that, got Stalin to agree that once Hitler was defeated and they got unconditional surrender, Stalin would contribute something like a million troops towards the defeat of Japan. I mean, that's an astonishing achievement for an American president going out to the other side of the world in the middle of a world war and yet... You know, you ask most people, and most people aren't really aware of just what he achieved. And then there is the... Churchill, of course, is devastated by this. And uh, apparently I found (laughs) this diary where he he goes back to the British Embassy and his doctor is rather worried because he... And says to him, well, Prime Minister, how did everything go? Was everything all right? And Churchill says, no, uh, a bloody lot went wrong. (laughs) All right. So in December of 1943, FDR comes back to America. He's had a triumph, as you say. And then he gives a Christmas Eve uh, fireside chat and Shortly after that, in January, the four or the second Bill of Rights speech. Mm-hmm. Say a little about those two uh, statements: the one in December, Christmas, nineteen forty-three, and then second Bill of Rights. In because here is what he does: is bring idealism mm. into the. Equation. Exactly, exactly. Um, it gives the Americans a what we are fighting for. Exactly. That's well put. I just, I, I would just say that the announcement from Hyde Park with his <laughs> grandchildren sitting around him actually was to announce to the world his decision to make General Eisenhower, young General Eisenhower, 
the supreme commander of the forthcoming invasion, which is, again, one of the critical appointments in all military history. Then in January, he proposes, um, just as he's begun the war, even before Pearl Harbor, by insisting on an Atlantic charter to set out the moral basis for war if war should come to the United States, just as he's declared a, a absolute convincing uh, statement of the Allied policy of unconditional surrender at Casablanca at the beginning of 1943, so at the beginning of 1944 he says this uh, war is being fought uh, not only to defeat the enemy but to create a new world if you like. And he um, he calls himself Doctor Win the War. <laughs> uh, he feels that the United States has is similar to a, a patient who suffered a, various illnesses, but who is now getting better, and that Americans need uh, to look forward to the period beyond the war to some association of of. Uh, nations and uh, that would work together for a better kind of peace than had existed after World War One. At the same time in these months on his return from Tehran, his health begins to deteriorate. So this is a man under not only enormous uh, moral and intellectual pressure, but also physical pain. Exactly. Uh, well, I mean, it's really, as you describe it, it's heroic because the the the, the uh, illness is is uh, debilitating. Um, it's more than debilitating. It, it, he is a dying man from the spring of 1944 before D-Day. It all has to be covered up because he's not only now the president of the United States. He's acknowledged to be the commander in chief of the Allied nations even more than Stalin. Stalin yeah. has the troops, but here is the president with the strategy. Yeah. And it is, you know, a sort of unwritten subtitle of the book might be from, from triumph to, to tragedy, because uh, although his White House physician, Admiral McIntyre, uh, won't admit it publicly, the president's health deteriorates. He can... Um, not just physically, but mentally as well. He finds he loses concentration. He can only work for a few hours a day. He's commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. but he yeah. just And finally, his daughter comes from California and says to Admiral McIntyre, bring in some consultants. Dad can't breathe. <laughs> right. yeah. And finally, that's in late March of 1944, just weeks before D-Day, they bring in this young cardiologist, and basically he says the president is dying. He he may only last a few weeks. He he has to have emergency treatment. I mean, there was a limited amount they could yeah. do in those days, which was basically using digitalis, which was highly toxic. But and the senior doctors all said, "Oh no, you can't use something as toxic as that." He's the president of the United States, and uh, Doctor Brune says to them. Well, if I don't, he's going to die. What then? So they do administer uh, digitalis. The president does survive, but he is a wounded man, and he doesn't want to go beyond his third term. And so uh, one of the great tragedies, really, is that, uh, or sadnesses, is that he 
his uh, staff all say, well, Mr. President, you can't back out now. And uh, the war isn't quite won. And right. you, you've presented this vision, but we have to make sure that uh, it is put into practice, that it's enacted. We need you. And so he does agree to stand for a fourth term. Knowing that it is a death sentence. Yes. I mean, he's told no. by yeah. Dr. Leahy, and yeah. we have actual written evidence. All right. This is the summer of 1944. The D-Day invasion is a success. Now he's really sick and has decided to stand for election in 44. He, he makes another long journey to Pearl Harbor to formulate the strategy for the war in the Pacific. I know, because this, um, this isn't just a war against Hitler. It's a global war. And although the defeat of Japan necessarily will have to follow the defeat of Germany, it, there is a great deal of uh, ocean <laughs> to be yeah, covered yeah. before that can be done. And he has heard, he, he's met, uh, Admiral Nimitz comes to see him in Washington, uh, but he's also heard uh, sort of inside stories in the uh, from the Pentagon about uh, the behavior of General MacArthur, who is refusing to get together with Admiral Nimitz. They are the two commanders in chief of the, their respective areas of the Pacific, and uh, so he decides there's only one man who can really knock their heads together and see whether they can't uh, begin to work together. Um, and so he goes out on his battleship to uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, really a very, very sick man. I think MacArthur rightly says uh, when he meets him, um, this man has probably doesn't have six months to live. Well, he was pretty close. Uh, but at any rate, again, it is really a triumph of courage that the president, go president goes out, and because of his stature as president and commander-in-chief. Nobody else could have told MacArthur to fly all the way from Australia to Pearl Harbor for the first time in the war to right. sit down with a Navy admiral yeah. <laughs> and actually con concert strategy. Yeah. So he forces MacArthur to sit with him in the car and they travel around U United States Navy installations as well as Army ones to try and illustrate how these um, different aspects of warfare, warfare have to be melded together if the Japanese are going to be defeated. And then, that evening, they go back to the president's uh, uh, temporary headquarters, his little White House in the, <laughs> in the Pacific, and he makes them literally get up and in front of a, a roll-down map on the wall show him how they propose to a invade or how they propose to defeat Japan. It is an extraordinary performance for a dying man, particularly. Yeah. All right. And he comes back to the United States. It's now the fall of 1944. He's standing for election. Uh, he's chosen Truman, whom he doesn't really know very well, as his running mate. But he doesn't Camp. He, he, he's not well enough to campaign, uh, but he's elected by a large margin. Mm -hmm. 
to a fourth term. And then, now when does he go to Yalta? This is now the next... So, so the inauguration, he isn't well enough to have the inauguration uh, at the uh, Capitol, so yeah. the inauguration takes place on the other side of the White House, on the terrace there. And uh, after that, in February, uh, he, he departs again <laughs> on a battleship, the USS Quincy, <laughs> and goes out to Malta and, uh, and then to Yalta. By the time he arrives at Malta, I mean, all the diaries I've consulted, uh, you know, people like the uh, um, British uh, uh, Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, and so forth, uh, they, they can't make sense of what he's speaking, and they're right. desperately worried about what will happen at Yalta in the Crimea, where the president is set to sit down with Stalin and to, to uh, basically agree the end game for the war and the post-war, setting up the president's vision, which he spent years developing, of a not a League of, League of Nations, which had failed after World War I, but something that would be called the United Nations Organization with a Security Council specifically designed to avoid the problems that had come after World War I and to, to actually protect the world from... A lot of historians discuss FDR's participation in, in, at Yalta as a failure, that, but that was not the case. Well, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, if you are... Um, if if you were Polish, <laughs> yeah. you would feel that uh, uh, Yalta was a sellout, right. uh, that uh, the, the Russians were basically allowed to carve up Poland. Um, and from a Pol Polish person's perspective, that's perfectly true. And Winston Churchill was particularly concerned about that because it was the British, his predecessor, who had signed a, a pact with Poland to defend Poland if the... Germans invaded. I mean, it was a it was a completely um, toothless pact because mm. the British couldn't do anything to stop the no. Germans. You know, uh, Hitler. Nor did they even attempt to do so. No. So you know, there's a, there's a certain degree of um, hot air in terms of pro protesting, protesting, Mr. Stalin, you can't do this. But the truth was. The, the Russians were determined, you know, Hitler had invaded uh, Germany through Poland and Hitler was, I mean, Stalin was completely determined that there would be this sort of cordon sanitaire in the future around uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, for instance, he took 10% of uh, Finnish territory, Saimar, that area, and so forth. He wanted, uh, he didn't want, I mean, basically when Hitler... Uh, attacked Russia uh, in 1941 in Operation Barbarossa. I mean, he, the, the Wehrmacht uh, reached Moscow within weeks. Uh, it, it, it was a walkover almost. The Russians were so unable to stop them. Well, Stalin was determined that wouldn't happen again, and therefore he wasn't going to uh, make any agreements over uh, Poland uh, that uh, he felt would be injurious to uh, Russian security. And frankly, the president couldn't force him to do anything because the, the Russians were already in Poland. Yes. <laughs> All the president could do 
in these few hours a day, literally only one or two hours a day, was just try and focus on the essentials, which for him were the, the uh, zones of occupation, which the Russians agreed to, in allowing even the French to have a zone of occupation of Germany, and the creation of or the establishment of a true United Nations body with a Security Council to avoid a Third World War, and also to uh, go home with uh, the promise that Russians would uh, um, provide around a million troops, especially in the Manchurian area, uh, to make sure that the Japanese wouldn't be able to withdraw troops from China to face the Americans if they had to land in Okinawa and, and the main Japanese islands. And, you know, in many ways, it's not a perfect achievement. <laughs> there was a lot more he could have done if he'd been a well man. But it is, a, to some degree, a miracle that he managed to do that. Yeah. His health is deteriorating by the day at, at this point. Literally, on the voyage home on the USS Quincy, his own military assistant, who's been with him since the beginning of the war, since Pearl Harbor, dies on the ship of the same yeah. illness, heart disease. So he lands back in the United States in March of, mm -hmm. and goes pretty much directly to Warm Springs. Um, he does. A few weeks later, um, he takes the train, the uh, Ferdinand Magellan, it was called, yeah. <laughs> uh, down to Georgia, to Warm Springs, um, and starts preparing for his speech. He thinks he might just live long enough to to give the opening address. To He, he says he's not going to stay in San Francisco for the conference. He's not up to, you know, dealing with any problems that arise, but he wants to give the inaugural address, a sort of perhaps a kind of visionary statement uh, in San Francisco. And so the, we're talking about the 11th, 12th of April, 1945, and the conference was going to, the speech would be the 25th. He is there with his medical uh, specialist, his uh, consultant, Dr. Brun. Uh, Admiral McIntyre isn't there, amazingly. Um, I think... To be honest, I think Admiral McIntyre knew that he only had days to live and, and was quite happy to leave somebody else to deal with it. But the president, you know, I, I argue in the book, um, and I speak here as a biographer, right. <laughs> from the letters and, and diaries of, that people kept at the time, um, I'm fairly confident in saying, but as a biographer, that the person who kept the American president alive from the spring of 1944, before D-Day, was Lucy Rutherford, Mrs. Rutherford. And the extraordinary thing was, I found when I was researching the book, was that in the very week when the president was given his sentence of death before D-Day in March of 1944, in that very week, Lucy Rutherford's husband, elderly husband, died, and she becomes a widow. Explain, I think, for 
people listening who might not know who Lucy Rutherford is, give us a little quick background on when she was Lucy Mercer and how long she'd known. She was a, a younger than the president. She had been a secretary to the president, or to, sorry, the, uh, uh, to Franklin Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor, during, at the time of World War I uh, in, um, in Washington when uh, FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy. And he fell completely in love with this woman um, and they had an affair, uh, clearly adulterous affair. He couldn't. Um, this is 1918, 1919. Yes, no, 1916, 1780. I mean, uh, and uh, it nearly wrecked his marriage. In fact, uh, Eleanor did offer him divorce over it. Um, uh, it is said, I'm not sure if it's true, that FDR's mother, Sarah, said, if you do get divorced, I'm not letting you inherit the house at Hyde Park. That's it. But at any rate, um, and I think Sarah, we do know that Sarah warned that his political career would be ruined. Uh, so for whatever reason, and I think the truth is Lucy Mercer, as she then was, uh, understood that if that happened, she would be ruining her new husband's life, if he, he was... So she rather bowed out, young lady in her 20s, and he didn't see her again. They corresponded, they occasionally spoke on the phone. She married this very wealthy uh, man, Winty R Rutherford, um, but she still adored FDR. And so I find it personally <laughs> rather touching that... Towards the end, very, very end of his life, I mean, he's found a modus vivendi with Eleanor. They both admire each other. They listen to each other. They work for each other. They're, they're, they consult each other. That I am perfectly certain that Eleanor knew that the, her husband, the president, was seeing Lucy, or the widow, because in that sense she was a perfectly... Yeah. normal, respectable woman, beautiful woman. But we weren't, it wasn't a question of a sexual affair or anything. But here was this woman who made this dying man want to live. <laughs> and I think personally she helped keep him alive. And one in the of the, last year of his in life. The, for a whole year, yeah. when the doctor said he might have a week. Yeah. And I think part of the proof is not only what other people have said and various diaries and so forth about the, the warmth of the relationship, but also the fact that who is it that the president wants to have by his side in those last days in Warm Springs? It's Lucy. She's as she close to... When, when he died. She was as close to him as you and I sitting at this table when he dies. April 12th. April 12th. Well, it's a very fine book that you have written, Nigel Hamilton. And I'm delighted for the chance to have read it and, and to have talked to you. I've been talking today to the historian Nigel Hamilton about his book, War and Peace, FDR's Final Odyssey, D-Day, the Yalta, 1943-1945. Thank you. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. 
Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.